Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 7, Lauren Jost, Theater as Human Education, Act 2, recorded July 17, 2016, at Courtney's apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 On Wednesday, May 9th, I was honored to be invited by an arts education host committee who coordinated an event to introduce the chancellor, Richard A. Carranza, at Carnegie Hall to be, well, to be the moderator, to have this conversation with this new New York City resident. Um, I was very proud, very proud to be able to represent the arts education community um, and to um, find ways to articulate the kinds of questions that were coming in from the participants or the attendees um, to him in a way that helped him articulate his vision, his thoughts about what arts education can look like for the 1.1 million students in the in the school system, which is the largest school system in the nation around arts. And um, if you don't know uh, Mr. Carranza, uh, he's absolutely lovely and very authentic. And, um, you know, he has a lot to learn, but he's only been here for six weeks. So we'll give him some more time to, to get acquainted and do his fact finding or his, you know, R&D but he's, he's um, somebody who's not afraid to use social media as a, as a form of communication. And if you haven't already, uh, follow him on, on the Twitter because he really he posts daily. And um, he's, he's um, how do I say this? He's, he's, I don't know, he's just very real. I, I really enjoy... I really enjoyed his energy. Um, I had a chance to talk to him sort of backstage or in the staging area prior to the event. And um, yeah, I, you know, I got to learn a little bit about what he's been able to do so far, learn about um, his daughters who are in college or one's graduating and um, just what, what he's excited to, to learn about the different culturals. Um, 
yeah, and that and that felt real. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel, um, um, you know, put on in any way. It really did feel genuine. And so that's that's the important piece for me, at least. I, I I'm somebody who feels energy, and if it feels funky, it that can be challenging. Um, but when it feels, you know, sort of vibrant. Um, that's kind of exciting to me. I mean, again, he has a lot to learn. Um, this is a very big system and a lot of different parts um, to, to the education system. Uh, but the fact is, is that he himself is a musician, uh, a professional musician. In fact, uh, he plays the guitar. He's, he's got an amazing voice. Um, he plays other instruments like the saxophone, I believe, and the violin. And... Um, what was really great about the event was the way we sort of culminated it is I asked if he'd like to play and he, he obliged and <laughs> he pulled out a pick. He pulled a pick out of his wallet, <laughs> which was very <laughs> uh, funny. Um, and then he sang this beautiful song. Oh, this beautiful song that he said um, his father, who taught him how to play guitar and was not necessarily a singer, sang this song to his wife when he proposed. And so Mr. Carranza, Chancellor Carranza, um, dedicated the song to his wife, um, which was very sweet. And um, boy, it was it was a touching moment and a really lovely way to end that event. Um, so if you haven't, uh, again, I say follow him on Twitter, but also, um, check him out on YouTube. He's, there's lots of clips of him singing, um, mariachi and, um, yeah, it's very talented. Um, so that actually leads me back to Lauren and I, <laughs> how you might ask, I'll tell you how, because in this episode, we actually talk about some of the, the hot topics that, um, Chancellor Carranza within the six weeks or actually just like very early on has already gotten into the fact that um, this school system, as big as it is, is also very segregated. And um, in the previous uh, or the, you know, the mayor's first term and um, under uh, Chancellor Carmen Farina, who I have a great deal of respect for, um, a couple things they they weren't they were very about diversity and equity and equity and excellence is a is the is the um the value statement on the public school system but they weren't pushing um hard at least um around this idea of desegregating or finding ways to make um some school uh schools in certain parts of the system um more accessible to students who are of color, essentially. And uh, about two years ago, there was a hot de button debate around a school uh, in Brooklyn Heights. And so Lauren and I talk about that a little bit. We also talk about um, certain schools needing to check, or maybe the people who are, the families uh, needing to check their privilege. Um, and now there's the similar... Um, plan of action there's two different ideas of how to attack this issue at a school in the upper west side and so chancellor carranza has jumped into that fray um to have those to 
part of the debate or to um, support this uh, plan of action. So that's how I connect us. But I want to talk about it, Lauren, just for a minute before we launch into the uh, episode itself. Um, so I have said Lauren and I are very close friends, but um, we also uh, we're also teammates because we play shuffleboard. Now, I've been thinking about this. When I say shuffleboard to people, of course, the first thing they think of is old people, right? Ha. But I've been thinking about leisure and letting your brain relax and yet keeping it sharp. Um, some people, you know, knit. Some people um, crochet. I, okay, the same thing. Um, some people play cards. Some people read adamantly right um other people run and these are things that you know are healthy for your body but also healthy for your brain and for your sort of um social self right um people do meetups that kind of thing so shuffleboard for me came about about three years ago when lauren and i were at a a colleague's and a friend's a holiday party and I was saying how I I you know I'm living alone I've been living alone for a couple of years now I'm feeling like in the middle of winter wow I'm really hermiting and I'm not there's not beyond work and some of my other uh you know jobs I don't feel like I'm being social and I don't want to just sit in a bar like that's not me so what can I do? And she was like, join shuffleboard. Come, I've already got a team. You'd be great. Now I've been in other adult leagues like dodgeball. I did that for a while and bowling. I love bowling. Um, in fact, I was on the bowling varsity bowling team in high school. That's right. Oh boy. You guys are learning so much about me. Okay. So anyway, shuffleboard, it is a leisure sport, but it also requires strategy and there's a comp- competitiveness, but sportsmanship. These are things that are important to me. And in a less, we talk a lot, Lauren and I, about, um, or she talks about it and I think about it, uh, about never sitting back on your laurels and sort of pushing. And so I think with shuffleboard, does for probably both of us one it's this like very great social place where the royal palm shout out to the royal palms has created this rec center um but unknowingly or maybe purposefully uh created this community of people who you know wouldn't necessarily come together otherwise um and I love it I find that uh, like I work in my entire you know schedule around it um but we play this game and um and then we sit around and we do the same thing that we used to do in the wee hours of the morning and talk about everything under the sun from politics to arts education to you know how we're moving uh forward in on our our own pro- projects and I love it but it's all under this like sort of low stakes unpressured way which is great so Lauren and I, in this episode, uh, we talk about the questions that we ask ourselves that push us forward toward action, that invest ourselves in our own artistries um, in order to diversify and strengthen teaching practice, um, creativity, um, inquiry, etc. And 
that you, it's important. It's very important to keep asking those questions and honoring yourself as an artist. We also get into, like I said, the inequities of public education and teaching artists livable wages and checking your privilege. All got to do that. So here is episode seven, act two, Lauren Jost, theater as human education. So we, we've come to a place where, like when I first met you, you were an apprentice at the New Victory. Mm-hmm. I did not know everything there was to know about it. so much of what you just said about your, uh, your, your desire to create original work. Like I didn't fully understand all of those pieces when I first met you. And then you started working as a, as a assistant teaching artist, which mm-hmm. we don't really have that role anymore, but that was a, that was a first step and then becoming a teaching artist. And now you're considered a master teaching artist with, even though we don't have that as a title, that is, there are the masters of our. You guys can't get rid of ensemble. me. I've been around a long time. We're not trying to. Yeah, yeah. We're not I've been around to. a long time. You have been around for a long yeah. time, but I distinctly remember a conversation between you and I. I, I, I'm blanking on exactly when it was, but I remember you coming to me and saying, "I would, I need to talk to you." <laughs> it was very urgent. And um, you saying, you know, what, what am I gonna do? I've been a teaching artist for X number of years. Mm-hmm. Am I going to do this for the rest of my life? I've got to do something. I've got to do be more or, or find ways to vary what I do. Yeah. Uh, do you remember this conversation? I, d- I very, very much do. And I had not, I didn't have it just with you. I had it with several people. Great. That's, yeah. I remember I, the I, exact I, moment of time that this happened. You were on a precipice, it felt. I was on a precipice, yeah. And, and what happened in your search? Sure. So I'd been in New York. This was when I'd been in New York about five years, four or five years. And I was working at the new victory. I'd finished my, I'd finished my grad school and, you know, and then on top of that had several years where I was like, I was adjuncting at NYU now and I was teaching for some really great organizations and I was working at the arts and education Roundtable, And I felt like all of the things that, that you would want to do to be, to say like, are you working successfully as a teenage or as a teaching artist? Like I checked off those boxes. Um, and I also at that time was starting a family. So I had a new, I had one young, very young child. He's about a year old. And um, I probably didn't know it yet, but another one on the way. And and started to think like, okay, well, what am I, what is my life going to look like in the long term? What am I going to just keep doing what I'm doing? Like now I've achieved these things that I said I wanted to achieve and I'm working in places that challenge me and I'm excited about, but is, is this it? Like, is, am I going to just now do this for the next 40 years? And I, like I said before, I'm very ambitious. That doesn't, that sort of feeling doesn't sit well with me that I've just like done what I needed to do. And now I'm done with it. That doesn't, that's not who I am. And not, not like if, if I start feeling like I've reached the limit, then I, I, I start getting very unhappy. So that was part of, that was part of the really, re, the question of like, okay, so now I've, I've, I've done the things I want to, what are the, what, where do, where am I going to throw my cap to next? That was part of it just as a personal ambition of, of being a person who wants to grow. Simultaneously, I also was becoming very aware of the limits of teaching artistry as a profession. Um, and a lot of that has to do with financial uh, stability and leadership and being in a in a field where 
we are expected to be extremely proficient, not only in our art form, but also in pedagogy and to possibly have a great graduate degree and to have lots of experience working with diverse populations and ages and locations, um, and then still also work under a living wage. And so I became really questioning, is that how, is that a field that I want to be in long-term? Do I want to be in a field where I feel like my best efforts and my most, um, the most of myself I'm giving to something that I'm never going to actually get, have a stable career? Um, and by stable, I mean um, something where I know I'm providing for my family. And that was a hard place for me, kind of thinking, so I'm wanting more for myself. I want more new challenges and new direction to go in. But also I want to feel like I'm in a field where I have somewhere to go professionally. Like I can move up. Like you're saying, if you've been in the field for 10 years, if you're good at your job, you're doing better. And I was looking around in a lot of the teaching artist field and realizing that's not the case. You can be working for a long time as a teaching artist and being really, really good at what you do and you never move up. There's not, where is it that you move up to? Um, that was a big question that I had. And I remember asking you, um, and asking other, and asking other people. And, um, and I started to make some changes in my career at that point. Um, I started actively seeking out teaching artist jobs that were outside of the K to 12 system. This was also in 2008 and 2009 when a lot of, uh, you know, there's a, there was a recession, mm -hmm. a lot of financial or sorry, a lot of cultural institutions were losing their financial backing mm -hmm. the school system didn't have as much money to put into cultural, mm -hmm. um, partnerships. And so a lot of teaching artist work was drying up. And I, you know, suddenly you like you work, you develop a reputation, you have relationships with different communities, and then you have a third of the work that you did before. So just as a freelancer, that was a challenging time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to diversify my portfolio a little bit um, in terms of who I'm, what communities I'm serving. Um, so that if this happens again, where the school work is unpredictable, that I have other areas that I teach in. So one of the areas that I started teaching at that point was working with older adults um, Annie Montgomery invited me to co-teach a class with her through Lifetime Arts, and I've now been working for them for six years, and I'm a trainer for their teaching artist programming, which is great. Um, and I've been doing memoir storytelling with creative adults, and that really um, scratched the itch that I had of working in a room with people and building community in a really meaningful and immediate way. Uh, these were groups of older adults who were retired and looking for community and meaning in their lives and kind of at a place in their lives where they had a little bit more time to devote to creative enterprises. Mm -hmm. And we started formulating a curriculum for doing memoir and memory writing and performance um, that it has been one of the most uh, emotionally uh, fulfilling aspects of my teaching. I have developed relationships with these incredible women and some men but mostly women um, and older women and gotten appreciation for the rich diversity of communities in New York and the places that people have come from. And um, these classes are usually centered in libraries. And so they're really very community-based and location-based. And it's just been an incredibly rich and fulfilling um, teaching practice and artistic practice. And then um, simultaneously with that, I started working more um, – specifically with early childhood. And I known that this was an area that I have a knack with. I, I, I get young kids and they get me. Um, and 
the are there are not a lot of cultural institutions in New York that were specifically working with early childhood. And even at the new Vic, like once or twice a year, there'd be a preschool program. And they'd be like, okay, well, we'll stick Lauren on that because she's like our preschool person. <laughs> but it wasn't quite enough work for me to feel like I was really going deep into that age group. And so um, I started running some programs in my neighborhood on my own and doing a, like a weekly drop-in mommy and me story time practice. Um, and, and I had decided also I wanted to make a show. So the, and this, is, this was the big change that happened five years ago was I decided I was like, well, I also, I remember you telling me, Courtney, I remember you, like we sat on my couch and you were like, well, Lauren, you're like, you will, she, you, you said you can't grow as a teaching artist if you're not also growing as an artist. You have to make the time for it. And I said that you did. You kind of called me out a little bit. You're like, you were a great teaching artist, but where's your art making? Where have you? And I was like, well, I've been busy. I went to grad school. Like that takes a lot of time. I've been, I've been working for you. Like this is, this is all, it's like very hard to like, to, to get lots of new jobs all the time. And I was still relatively young teaching artist, and I was, I was on my hustle and it's hard to also be a practicing artist and to hustle in more than one field simultaneously. And um, and you said that, that I, I hear you, but you, you, you have to do it. You, you can't grow as a teaching artist if you're not also growing as an artist. And um, I had seen a lot of theater for very young coming through the new victory over the years from uh, Northern Europe and Scotland and Denmark and Australia. And I knew that that was an art form that I was very, very, very interested in and a population that I was very, very interested in. And I had a young baby at home and another one on the way. And um, I decided, I was like, yes, this is what I'm going to try for a little bit. I'm going to try and make a play for very young audiences and see what happens. And um, now, and then accidentally formed a theater company. I didn't mean to. I was just like, oh, if I'm doing these classes and I'm making a show, if I just call them the same thing, then like maybe I'll get some people to come to both of them because it will seem official. And like we, I'll make a website and that'll be official then. And so um, I started Spellbound Theater um, accidentally, I didn't tell my husband that I was starting a not-for-profit theater company that was going to take over our lives. I was like, no, it's fine. I'm just going to put up a website. It's no problem. Oh, wait, hold on. Now I also need liability insurance. Okay, wait, hold on. I need this closet for storage. I'm going to, I'm just, don't worry about me. I'm just going to work 40 hours a week on this thing that doesn't pay me anything. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And, um, and that kind of started a an adventure that's been a huge part of my life in the last five years and has really shaped my teaching practice and my artistic practice and just like who I am as a person and where I want to be going. And it's all, it all, like all of the threads kind of braid together into the same thing. So I've, I've been talking, I'm, this is where I wanted to go. I've been talking to, you know, a few different people um, about who they are as an artist versus a teaching artist. Um, yeah, a lot. It's what's really fascinating is I've picked people at least initially I've picked people, I have a huge list of people I want to talk to, but I've picked people to talk to you and to start um, because I admire what they do. And I really, I just think that I just really like them. But um, what I find really interesting is that everybody either has been or is in this questioning place, right? So for you that, that, that time, 2008, 2009, there was a lot happening, a lot of questioning, and then action comes out of it, mm -hmm. right? And so tell us a little bit more, tell me a little bit more about the um, how Spellbound Theater has impacted 
um, your thinking, your way of operating in, in the world of teaching artistry and, and art or theater? So, um, the one, I mean, the biggest thing to like, to, to sum it up and give an easy answer is it's purposeful action. Like this is a, it's a thing. It's not just making, it's, I'm not just making, um, performances and building a company. And there is always something to do. Like I'm never, there's never a time or a moment where I'm like, oh, I don't know, what should I do now? Because there's always a list of 30 things that I'm supposed to be doing and I'm probably late on. Building a company is really hard work and it drives me and motivates me and stimulates me and is very exciting in that way. And and so I don't have that anxiety about what am I supposed to be doing with my life now because this is what I'm doing. I don't know if I'll do it forever but it's taken up enough of my time now that I don't need to worry about forever. So that's kind of, that was an immediate answer to the like, what is, what is it all for mm-hmm. question? Mm-hmm. Um, I think also as an artist, because now I'm in a place where I'm producing theater and directing projects and really working as an artist, this constant questioning and constant an- ambition and constant, like I have this question, I want to dig into it. I want to see what it means. Um, that's my whole life now. I mean, that's what being an, an artist, a producing artist is, is constantly digging into those questions. And it is, it, it makes, I feel like it makes me be able to be who I am because if I'm not putting that questioning and challenging and digging into my artistic life I start putting it into my personal life and that's not good for anybody (laughs) like (laughs) like nobody wants to be the person who's like like you know at their kids preschool open house day and being like yes but what is it all for what is it like what does it mean (laughs) like that's not helpful it's Mm. not it's not productive like I have a productive place to put that part of my personality Mm. that is always unsatisfied and um and so that makes me a happier person because it's okay to be unsatisfied as an artist. You're supposed to be unsatisfied. That's how you know that you're doing good work. And it allows me to be more satisfied in other areas. Um, so in my teaching practice, I feel like it's definitely given me a sense of stability that A, I'm, I know what I'm doing. Um, artistically, like I'm just a better teaching artist when I'm making art. I'm better at... Uh, at questioning and pushing um, and digging with my students because I'm in that process myself. And I am able to facilitate a creative process in a much stronger and richer way. Um, That's been true in my K to 12 experiences um, and working with the new victory and then also still working with older adults and being able to bring my artistry into that realm. And then I've been doing a lot of work over the last two years also with starting to kind of answering that question of like, what do you do when you have been a teaching artist for 10 years? And Mm -hmm. for me, it's been moving a lot into professional development and training, Mm -hmm. which is great. Like kind of being able to help um, share my experiences and and what knowledge I have with, you know, new teaching artists and classroom teachers and um, cultural arts administrators um, on how to work with different communities and how Mm -hmm. to build quality arts programming and meaningful arts programming Mm -hmm. um, is something that I've been uh, really, really excited about moving into lately. So that's kind of the like, I feel like a lot of the questions that I was asking five years ago have been answered in that way. Um, 
And then just on a really, I mean, just like on a simple day-to-day uh, way, I, I feel like I'm, I'm reaching a level of mastery and hopefully I won't end there because I, I want to always keep getting better at what I do. But, um, you know, Spellbound is one of the only theaters that works with early childhood in the country. We're one of only about like five to 10 in the country. And we're the only one in New York that's working exclusively with that age. And it really pushes me to, um, to, to be really good at it. Like if we're going, if I'm going to be a representative of a really small growing field, Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of pressure to be really, really good at it. Mm -hmm. I want to know as much as I can about early childhood. I want to know as much as I can about the international field and how those trends are playing out in the United States. I want to be a great artist. I want to be making things that, that people look at and be like, Oh wow, that's interesting. I want to see more of that Mm -hmm. and help the field grow in that way and to create places for new, um, artists to come in and that, that level of expertise where I feel like I'm very confident in my artistic abilities as well as my kind of pedagogical background in that area at this point is is helping me um, in my teaching artistry as well as my artistry. Did that answer your question? I can't remember what your question was. Yeah, no, it did. How okay. do they, how do they? Yeah, they're completely intertwined. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no um, division at all. Yeah. There does, there's just, no, there isn't any. So, it, so, but you've, together, we also started a different company. We did. <laughs> that was focused on creating work for teens. Teens, yeah. And, and I remember uh, when we initially got together, we were, as a, as a full group, we were trying to figure out, we knew we wanted to make, devise original work for young audiences, but it was a matter of like deciding what the target was. And we experimented along mm-hmm. the way and eventually realize, okay, the teens was where it's at because I feel like that's also an area that, um, there's a dearth, there's a yeah. hole there. And, um, our, that company is not necessarily filling the hole as, as strongly as I would like it to, but that's because of time. We have one show as opposed but you have, to, but, this is, but there's a difference to between like you guys, we built, we started building and then you and Andy continued building yeah. a really strong show. And mm-hmm. that's, that I think there's a difference between building a show and building a company. Like there's different tasks lists Mm -hmm. and the, I think that like those goals were totally fulfilled with that show. Oh, absolutely. I I was, was I guess I was thinking of course, larger, the larger landscape, but I agree. I mean, being able to remount it more recently, Mm -hmm. the show itself and sort of decide, Oh, we should be a company for real. Like not just a name, but actually like become an LLC and see where we want to go when we have time. But um, but what was interesting was we had, we had done the show the first time as a workshop and then, um, Spellbound became like more time consuming for you and more yeah. of a focus. So it was, it, and I had just become director and Annie was taking off on certain things. So like it lay dormant for th- uh, at least three years. I think it was, yeah, yeah, um, maybe even close to that. But the but the thing is that I I agree with you the idea of being able to make work or be an artist feeding into being a teaching artist feeding into being an arts administrator is the arts part of of administrating so much of what we try to do is encourage art making uh, amongst our staff um, and it's it's really important because that that 
you talked about passion, you know, I, I have this passion more so for working with early childhood that, that, that instead of making theater for kid for with a, a young people um, right. that were older, you know, that, that idea of passion, that passion begets passion. That's why I'm doing this. Right. You know, I want to know why, why there are people who make choices even if they're passionate about this thing, they make a choice to do something completely different or is adjacent to what they want. And they're not very happy at making a career in this, but it pays the bills or it's, you know, it's what you're supposed to do as opposed to going into a passion. And I think, you know, you also talked earlier about how your parents sort of knew that you were going to be a theater major before you did. What is that thing? Because I did exactly the same thing. I wanted to be a theater major, but I became a communications major first. And then I changed, you know, Mm. what is that thing that who's telling us that we shouldn't be an artist in our lives when look at all the great, amazing things that we can do when we actually say yes to it. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that artistry is something that is not valued so if you shout into the world, I'm going to be an artist, you're going to hear a lot of like, who cares coming back. It's not, it's not a, it's seen, we culturally view artists as kind of self-indulgent. Mm. Um, that's, and I think that's a change from the way that artists as a class were seen in the 1700s or 1800s or even 1900s that we're in this period where it feels a little, um, like there's a, there's a prejudice against it mm. um, as being kind of selfish almost of like oh so you're gonna just go play and do this stuff and it's fine like that's fine if you want to do it but I'm not gonna like give you a helping hand with it and so that that it can be hard to say yes when you have that own desire within you and that's one of the reasons that I am so called to passionately to arts education is that so much in the schools if like that the arts Mm -hmm. are the are the first thing to get cut Mm -hmm. that they're the first thing that's taken away when you have to prepare for testing that it's like okay that's great yes it's nice it's lovely if you want to like have a theater program but actually we have real work to do here we need to get these kids ready for the test and what I love about arts education and particularly as a visiting artist who gets to go into lots of different schools is being a voice that reminds us like, no, no, actually this is, this is important. This is just as important, if not more important than everything else that we're doing for these children. This, I, this idea of putting us in touch with our humanity, putting us in touch with what's beautiful in the world of giving us a moment to connect with each other as people rather than educational products. Like this is a really important part of life and and I think that finding that passion passion and nurturing that passion is something that I was lucky enough to be able to do and I think that coming back to the question of privilege there's a lot of privilege that be that comes with being able to say yes I'm going to be I'm going to follow what I'm passionate about I'm going to and I'm sure I'm going to just spend all this money on a graduate degree and I'm going to work in a field that may or not pay may or may not pay me a ton um, or if it does pay me adequately it's very sporadically so mm-hmm. there might be dry spells and all of that I'm able to do that because I have a safety net because I have a partner who has a really well-paying job because I had parents who are able to kind of you know cover the gaps in my education when I couldn't completely afford it and that kind of it's it's a lot easier to pe- to follow your passion when you have people around you giving you permission to do that. Mm. And one of one of the things that I find really meaningful in my work as a teaching artist is finding kids 
and, and being able to give that same message that I that my professor gave me 20 years ago, which is like, yeah, you can get a job in this. Yeah, this is you could you like this? Like you mm-hmm. could do that. There's a job. I'm not going to teach you how to do it because I'm doing this other like community-based thing, but let me put you in touch with like five other programs in the city right. who will actually teach you to be a theater artist. Like being an artist is not only important, it's not only essential to have artists in our communities, but it's a it's an actual viable part of being in our community. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's I think that you can like passion is fantastic, but you have to also have room to allow it in. Um, and it's not possible. Like, it's just not possible for everybody. It's also not, it's not, um, smart for everybody. Like I, I know I have, I think I've worked with a lot of teaching artists, especially when I was younger who left the teaching artist field and they were really passionate about it, but they were also passionate about being able to retire someday and having health insurance. And, so they went into the school system and I think that's also fantastic. Like you have to go, you can only take the risks that you're willing, that you feel comfortable sure. taking. And I think that if that being able to, you know, even if this field isn't forever and for, and for people who do start out as a teaching artist and go and, and go into administration or go into classroom teaching or, or go into just full art making and, you know, go on tour, what, whatever it is, it's, like I don't think that this is a field that's really built built for longevity, um, but it's always exciting when you see somebody who's able to just like kind of grab onto it and take it for what it is in that time, even if it's not forever. And I think that that like the space between in the show that you and I worked on, mm-hmm. one of the things that was really exciting about that project and was really exciting about seeing it come up again and knowing it will come back again in the future mm-hmm. is that when you have passion and you have something that you're really excited about and passionate about and that's good it can lay dormant for a while. Like it doesn't have to be all or nothing all the time. You yeah. can take a seed of something and set it down for a little bit and then come back to it. Right. And you come back to it with fresh eyes. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the circumstance under which it was, it was done the first time we all, we all desi- de- de- uh, devised it and then took on specific roles. Yeah. Um, and then in, in this last incarnation, so the, so the company is called a space between and the, the piece is called the red dress, which is um, really focused on um, a sort of coming of age uh, questioning, you know, who am I identity um, and, and sexuality piece. Right. Or, or do I have sex? (laughs) Right. Not sexuality. Like, am I, who, who, what kind like, what am I attracted to? But more, how do I express Mm -hmm. express myself sexually? Um, and that, I mean, it, we came to that after, you know, quite some time. And then when we remounted it, it was, we pulled out to the, there was only one person who was a part of the original devising who was in it, but I was in it, which is me. And I took on a different role. Mm-hmm. I play, I ended up playing the mother, which I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, but I had had lot, there were lines in there that, um, that I, that spoke to me so specifically because my own experiences. So like Mm. what we did. And then when we recast everything, um, we really worked hard to make sure it was a diverse cast. We ended up hiring, um, we were looking for two actors. We ended up, um, we, we there were three of us, but then we wanted to add two more young people to the cast. And we ended up bringing three in because they were really strong 
and it was nice because it was actually the first time we did it like it was an all-female cast and here we had two two young men who were able to play some of the male characters and then Mm -hmm. other characters as well and and it was it was really exciting um to sort of feel new energy around the the text and the language and then new movement phrases. It was really exciting. And then to be able to share it with people in a a brand new space and um, the kinds of dialogue that came out of the talkbacks around it. And, you know, it was really also thinking about like a young person or teenager's life in terms of the uh, social media being another character in a kid's life. Um, in addition to your friends and your parents and whoever else is around you and boyfriends, et cetera. Um, so, so we were investigating, you know, what is, what is it? We used our own experiences as the, the, um, ex- as the starting point for the narrative in that process. I agree with you. Like we were thinking about, okay, well, where, where does this, where, how does it live on? And we mm-hmm. do have some plans and ideas for that. And the idea of being able to use, um, either use the piece to be able to to spark dialogue for young women and men um, and to do maybe some professional development or for people who are working with young men to have those conversations. Yeah. And then the other part of that, like the idea of being able to work with young people to create their own means of expression mm-hmm. about around any topic that the, that is of interest to them. Um, so the the ability for theater to be able to have multiple, uh, tracks, yeah, uh, for investigation, for expression, for um, questioning and inquiry, which goes back to you know, for me, when you were talking about how arts are the first things to go, or like no more fun time, it's time for us to study te- uh, for the test. You know, if you had the art, you, these kids are asked to speak and listen. They are mm-hmm. asked to provide, uh, to ask questions, to provide evidence for information and pre- present as part of that. And then reading acquisition and, and comprehension, that is where the arts can support that. Right. But nobody sees that when it's like, well, this is priority. Uh, testing is priority. So everything right. else has to go to the wayside as opposed to saying, wait, if we actually integrate the two, these kids who, yes, they have standardized tests that they have to take. That is something that is a mandate. But maybe they could do better if we actually continued that yeah. artwork but the, <laughs> in their know, lives. This is this is an time. issue that because the arts are are they are both formative and summative assessment mm-hmm. and making theater. There is all of the assessment that, you know, when you go in and figuring out what are we learning? How are we analyzing? How are we going to work together? How are we going to put this thing up? And then you have to do a show at the end. So like you, there, there is all of the things that we want to see from our kids in a, a testing in, a, in an ed- educational setting. We can find like the arts can do that, but there's also in the arts, there's a fundamental assumption that there isn't always a right answer. And if there are right answers, there might be multiple right answers. Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental basis of arts education and just being an artist is that there's more than one way to get to the ending that every person might have a different interpretation and that whatever product we come up with like no two classes are going to come up with the same product that is in direct opposition to the to current educational climate Mm -hmm. and when we take the arts out of the schools and we don't give kids that opportunity to have those kinds of explorations and and creative processes we're leaving them only in this world of right and wrong answers 
and that they're usually wrong because the tests and the curriculum are really poorly designed. Like they're usually failing. And then if they don't once, it's like, great, good. Now we finally caught up onto the next thing. It's a really disheartening place for kids to be. And but they don't. But the kids don't know any different, right? They don't Which know is any so different. sad. But it's so the sad. teachers do. So I, I've had conversations with teachers who are like, "Well, before Common Core, or before I used to be able to really like dig deep into, you know, a particular subject or go where the the class was interested, yep. and and they could see my passion. And this is this is coming from a teacher." a middle school teacher who is a social studies teacher and he loves history. Right. And so we we would start one place and we'd go into these other places, but I don't have time for that now because I have to teach, I have to get them ready for that test. So the entire school academic curriculum is based on the fact that in April they are going to take a test as opposed to helping young people develop the skills that they need to, to actually function in life as, as, and, you know, to be able to ask questions, to be able to have dialogue, to be able to, um, build their research skills, do presentations, all those things that they absolutely need. They need to do. And also I think that, I think there's a huge cultural and racial divide Mm. and class divide and who gets those opportunities and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you, my mom was telling me, my mom was a kindergarten teacher for many, many years. And she told me she heard on the radio the other day, um, you know, I think it was a program on WNBC and they were saying like, oh, well, you know, play-based education in preschool is great, but really only for kids who have come from a like language rich, sensory rich home life. And for all those kids who maybe haven't had as many books in their home and don't have, you know, and like basically all this coded language for kids who aren't upper middle class white kids they need to get this like rigorous reading and writing and my mom was like throwing the radio across the room saying like no it's exactly the opposite it's actually exactly the opposite but there's there is this massive divide in who gets arts education programming who gets to have that one hour a week where there's not a right or wrong answer and we i mean i i I think that this plays into not just these the this tension in our educational system of like of of between are all answers black and white do we need to expect black or white answers from our students is is this kind of this standardized testing role right for our kids and then realizing that 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 question is being answered so differently in low income schools in East New York than it is in you know, at the blue school, that the, that these questions of who gets to have creative processes, who gets to be in a room where the adults are not stressed out about having to make those children achieve on a certain timetable, it, there's an incredible amount of inequity in that. And that's one of the things that I feel really passionately about in working in K to 12 schools and working in the city. And that I feel like, the work that we do is so important and so rich because, you know, as artists, like we can't, our, our world is so, is filled with so much conflict right now and so much violence. There was another shooting today. Mm-hmm. Like I got an update on my way here. Mm-hmm. There's just like, there's so much wrong with the world that we live in right now. And there's no way that any of us can fix all of it, mm-hmm. but giving just like a tiny little opening for empathy and beauty and being present in the room that you're in. Like if we can give that to kids, 
I mean, it's got to like, it's got to do something, right? Like it's got it that I wish that their whole lives could be like that, but you know, I haven't figured out how to pay for that yet. So we're going to just <laughs> no, try. I, I agree though. I mean, th- it's very interesting when you, what you were just saying the the black and white versus right and wrong. Yeah. This isn't a black and white world. I mean, it may feel like that because of the racial tensions that are happening right now, but it, it's not. And I, I think class and eco- economics or income levels have a huge influence on how how we see um who yeah who gets what who deserves what Mm -hmm. which is um indicative of of you know 70 years ago before the civil rights um act was so you know we're at a place where we used to live literally live in a world where segregation was law. Right. And by we, I just mean this country, but where it was law and in other countries like Australia and South Africa, where the law was in favor of, of white supremacy and, you know, considering like in Australia, Aboriginal peoples were not considered human Right. Until 1972. Mm-hmm. Human. So, you know, what? while it's like everything that's happening now is not right. None of it is right. But like mentally, <laughs> if the, you know, the Civil Rights Act was signed in what, 1965? Right? Right? Four? 1964. Five? I think it was 1965. But in 50 years yeah there have been significant changes but they're not necessarily fundamental systemic shifts yet well there's some systemic shifts yes but but but, then there's others that are left behind exactly so there there there's systemic change that are have been mandated Mm -hmm. but but then there's like a new opportunity for continued um, suppression or oppression right Right. So you have Jim Crow and now you've got the, you know, the school to prison pipeline. Right. And that like literally judges have been selling, selling people to jail. Mm -hmm. That there are companies who profit off of prisoners working and making like a dollar. That there are that it's you get more money. To convict people to more. To convict right. more people. Mm-hmm. So mass incarceration than educating young people. Mm-hmm. So that inequity that you're talking about. And and then you've got the whole like, you know, police. Like, so the other day, this is, this is not, this is more about, this is not really. Okay. But the other day or a couple of weeks ago, I shared um, a picture of Malcolm X with a quote saying, they took off their white hoods and put on police uniforms. Some, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. And one of my friends private messaged me and says, do you really believe that? And I was like, yeah. I mean, not, I mean, that quote is from the sixties, but like, right. Kinda. I mean, right now who, who gets to be protected and served seems like it, it varies. It's not consistent across the board. 
it's the same with education, right? So like there was the, the child, uh, there was an act that was signed also by Johnson about making education more equitable and somehow that hasn't really, and then no child left behind happened. So right. that was the shift. And now they, the, the Congress just made a new, a new education act. It hasn't been enacted yet, but like what is still considered like confusing to me like so I keep I'm sorry I'm going national now I'm going local okay so on the local level under Bloomberg there was all these cuts like there like Mm -hmm. during the school year he would have schools cutting their budgets it's such a big colossal cluster and I don't (laughs) and I I don't know how to untwist I don't know how to untwist it I look around the city and I think one of the things I love about my job is that I visit schools all over the city except for Staten Island Nobody sent me to Staten Island yet. But anyway, I try in all the other four boroughs. Like I try I traveled all over the city. I go to all different kinds of schools. I go to, you know, private schools on the Upper West Side and I go to public schools in the Bronx and I go to charter schools in East New York. Like we go, I go all over. And I think I've taken for granted having done this for 11 years of understanding what the landscape of the city looks like, even literally just what different neighborhoods look like. Mm-hmm. Like I've realized like my husband knows what two neighborhoods look like. He knows what downtown yeah. looks like and he knows what Park Slope looks like. And he tries to get out and he's a good guy, but like he literally, that's where he spends his time. Right. And I actually know what all these other neighborhoods look like. And I know what the schools in them look like. And the, the, the reality in New York is that we still live in an incredibly segregated city. Yep. We live in an incredibly segregated city, and yet attempts at desegregating the city usually makes it worse. And like the the kind of um, disenfranchisement that happens through gentrification is uh, like not helpful. Nope. I don't know. I don't know what to do. And I look at. I'm like, uh, my kids go to a school that is in a very wealthy district kind of just by luck like we you know it just we just lucked into it now we're stuck in this 600 square foot apartment with four people in a theater company because we can't afford to move out of it That's and, a, like that is a comedy show four uh, people in a theater company yeah <laughs> i know i know it's it, it would be a sad show like, <laughs> it's zach, a little like run, like <laughs> zach trips over some sort of like set and proper oh a puppet lauren <laughs> That's that's literally every morning, um, and and meanwhile my kids are like stealing my props and making shows in their back room, and um, but you know I look at their school and like as a parent I'm like of course I want you know like I want you know, I look at the PT and the 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 level of privilege and unaware privilege that oh. happens within that this school mm-hmm. that we're in is mind blowing of the the number of times that I've heard parents being like. But what do you mean my child doesn't get one-on-one attention like 15 times a day? It just, it, the privilege is mind-blowing. And compared with the amount of resources that are available in a lot of the schools that we visit and work mm-hmm. in is, it's just, it's night and day. And I don't, I literally don't know what to do. I've been thinking about this for the past five years, trying to figure out like, okay, so what, I'm like, I'm, I, I'm a person who likes to know things. I want to have answers. I'm going to be like, I think that the answer to segregation in New York schools is X, Y, and Z. I don't know. I have no, no. I'm no closer. I mean, just look at, they are trying, so the chancellor is trying to desegregate. There's a huge controversy about the school in, in Brooklyn Heights mm-hmm. where they're combining two schools and it's like this huge very fraught discussion and 
uh, it's ugly. It's ugly, yeah. y'all. We're going to continue on this idea of, of race and privilege. And then um, I also want to just talk a little bit about your advocacy for teaching artists. Oh, good. Yeah. But then that's it. Great. Because we it. could literally talk and oh. have until the wee hours of the morning. Right. Usually with a glass of wine. I would say the, the wine makes the conversation get even louder <laughs> and longer. So you had mentioned, which I didn't ask you to explain, but you had mentioned earlier, or a few times actually, um, the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable. Yes. And you you worked for them for quite a, a couple of years, Several right? years, yeah. Um, and now you're um, on a committee yes. of it, and a co-chair of the committee actually, right? Yes. So t- what is the, the Arts and Education Roundtable? The Arts and Education Roundtable in New York City is a consortium of cultural institutions and individuals who work in arts education. So uh, the it's comprised mostly of people who work in the education departments um, and and work alongside schools and community groups as um, arts partners. So um, just to, to kind of differentiate, we don't the arts education roundtable is not a lot of certified arts teachers. It's more teaching artists, people like yourself who are arts administrators with cultural organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary focus of the arts and education roundtable is K to twelve education, but there's growing representation of people who work outside of K to twelve. Yes system. And what is the committee that you focus on? Um, I have been on the Teaching Artist Affairs Committee for the past four or five years and a bit of co-chair for the last three years. And what is that? What's the focus of that committee? The Teaching Artist Affairs Committee was formed to give a voice to the teaching artists within the Arts Education Roundtable. Most of the representatives and members of the organization historically have been arts administrators and there was a desire to include teaching artists' voices in the conferences and programming of the roundtable, as well as in its leadership. Mm-hmm. And we have been working on that charge in various capacities, from doing teaching artist mixers to having um, professional development workshops to providing resources for teaching artists on how to file your taxes as a freelancer and get health insurance through the new exchanges. Um, and then we've also more recently had a um, blog series on working as a teaching artist in New York and other initiatives as well. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a really, it's a good committee. I feel like when it first started, I, I was on, I am on the committee. I was a co-chair for several years as well. And um, when I first came on, it was, it, had been around I think for a couple of years before I, I joined and it still was trying to figure out find its legs and yes. and I think you know it eventually had my, the big thing for us at least for me when I joined was like I want to provide space for teaching artists to have a voice which is sort of you know where this this project has come to um along the way but um that's a big that's a big thing for me is like advocacy for teaching artists something that you were saying about the west coast is how it's not as professionalized in terms of being a teaching artist out there as perhaps it is here it is a fairly young profession yes um now people are actually making instead of falling into it people are making very conscious choices to become a teaching artist Mm -hmm. um in as of late and uh, you know, while people were like Dorothy, we talked about earlier, you know, ha- were sort of doing this work, they were not necessarily calling themselves a teaching artist. And right. apparently the, 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 the term 
teaching artist was coined at Lincoln Center, then Institute, now Education, um, in 1980-something, early 80s. So, and there are people who don't call themselves a teaching artist, Mm -hmm. even though the work, you know, so there's a teaching artist is sort of like a, an umbrella for many titles like artist, teacher, teacher, artist, art specialist, art specialist, right. mm-hmm. um, visiting artist, a visiting artist, residence, mm-hmm. resident artist, residence. What is it? A resident artist. Thank you. Resident yeah. artist. Um, artivist is artivist. something. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, so it's all, so, you know, when I talk about, teaching artistry all of those terms fall under that is in my opinion the actor educator actor educator mm-hmm. actor teacher uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah all those things um because really it's about you know bringing bringing opportunities for art making and creativity to a group of people right and also we're also with- like cats so like if somebody was like here's this monolithic group there'll be 20 teaching artists who are like no i'm uh, over yeah. here to something else yeah we don't all like exactly but at the same the, sa- but yes. the the crux of it is there is it's not working for one organization necessarily it is trying to make sure that you have a a livable wage whether it is working for multiple organizations or supplementing in other ways and the idea is that you are create art making in in whatever capacity that means to you whether you're making money in your art making or you're creating your own or you've built your own uh beautiful uh uh company you know but the the that art Practicing art is as is as inherent to what it is that you do in your life as teaching is. Yes. So what are what are some of the great things about this growing profession? Mm-hmm. And where are the holes? Oh, such a good question. The great thing about being a teaching artist is that there's always a new challenge and always a change of scenery and um, if you are like me and many other artists with kind of um, who who like thinking on your feet and like being presented with new challenges, uh, th- there is no shortage of these things. Um, there's always a new project to be working on. You're rarely in the same school for an extended period of time, so you're constantly developing relationships with teachers and students. There's a lot of diversity in the kind of work that you do, and that is very satisfying for some of us who get bored being in the same place all this, all the time. Um, th- another really great thing about it is the flexibility, the, be- the ability to take time off to work on an artistic process. Um, I found it uh, really wonderful when I had children and a very young ba- babies and um, only wanted to be working 10 to 15 hours a week. That was very manageable as a teaching artist. I was still able to maintain all of my professional relationships and um, I guess clients for lack of a better work, the the relationships with different organizations I work with, but just on a more minimal basis. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody really, I didn't have to ask anyone's permission to go down in time. I just kind of updated my availability. And that was a real relief for me as a parent to not have to choose between working for an organization and being home with my children that I was able to do both in a way that I see a lot of, I've seen a lot of my friends in the corporate world did not have that option. Mm -hmm. Um, It was kind of all or nothing choice. And that I think is a real benefit to teaching artistry that a lot of us 
um, are discovering as we um, get into our 30s. Um, and I like working with lots of different people. I like that I can work with K-12 to in the New Victory and be really focused on um, exposing kids to world-class art and having that live theater experience be at the center of their um, learning with the New Victory. And then I like working in very um, intimate residency groups, creating work with groups of students. Um, I've, I, I have appreciated that I've been able to refine the areas that I am most comfortable in, and especially working with older adults and very young children. I'm, uh, I've definitely gotten to achieve a, a kind of focus in where I wanted to master my skills, but um, I'm still able to take jobs with lots of different age groups and that's okay. I have yeah, the opportunity I, to do that. I like that too. I like the idea of being able to sort of ha- be a jack of all trades, but being able to focus, yeah. have a focus mm-hmm. um, is, is also something that I, I like. I like watching people. I like, I think as a, as an arts administrator also uh, helps us to cast yeah. to say, Oh, this is somebody who like, this is what they do. This is, this is something that they're quite passionate about. So they're going to give their all to making our, that program or that project or whatever that is at its highest level, right. you know, and that's what you want. You want passionate people to be working with you. Yeah. And when I was a young teaching artist, I feel like you have to say yes to everything yeah. because you don't know what you're good at yet. Well, yeah. And you have to, you literally have to say yes to everything because mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to be a, like a, a long-term cornerstone of your career so you don't want to you know but now I'm, I'm older and I'm pretty settled in the partnerships that I have um, I'm not on my hustle as much anymore and I can say no to things if I'm like you know what actually I'm not the one to direct your after-school play like that's not gonna be good for me or you like that's just not Talk, me I, I you have now said hustle about mm, five or six times I know the hustle. Mm-hmm. There are many people that I, I like. I feel like I gravitate towards people who know how to hustle. Mm-hmm. And by hustle, it's not like scheming, but no, it is no, no, about no. like it's the work. It's, it's getting the work the, getting work. I mean, and, it's and yes. making the relationships making and building relationships. the relationships, and maintaining mm-hmm. the relationships, yep. and not expecting something for nothing, which some people may think right. But and I, you know, I've been doing this for ten years in New York specifically and longer outside of New York. And I still, every year I look at my past year, I talk to my husband. I'm like, did I work enough this year? Did I work too much? Do I need to find a new place to teach next year? Um, do I need to cut a place out? Um, that's a constant reevaluation. And, and I'm lucky that I do that less now when I, you know, in the first five years that I was teaching, that was some, that was a process that was happening every two months of like, okay, do I think I need a new job? Like, I, it looks like this residency isn't going to be happening. I need to find someone right. else who's going to give me a residency. And now I have a little bit more stability in my life. Um, I don't need to do that quite as frequently, but it doesn't stop. Like you don't stop having to get new gigs. But I feel like artist. that's also an artist thing. I mean, yes. right. Yes. Y- you may be in like people who are in Hamilton, boy, were they working on other stuff while they were trying to make sure that if I decide not to re-up my contract, yep. I got someplace I'm going. And, yep. and you know, so it's, it's a thing. It's, it's like, thing. this is a thing this in the, general it, as an artist. And it's becoming more and more of a thing outside of the artist trade as well. Like just the gig economy is, you know, right. You gotta... The difference though, is that there isn't a, a union necessarily. No. Right. So many of those artists uh, have somebody who's like making sure that they're getting treated properly. Right. This is, I think, 
a challenge mm-hmm. of being a uh, of the teaching artist profession what you can expound on that or what are some other areas that you think need um, shoring up improving etc so one of the things that I'm really uh, focused on in my advocacy for teaching artists is compensation for work Um, there's a really wide range in New York City of what people pay teaching artists across the country Um, and I for a long time I would kind of be like well of course like I made $20 an hour when I was teaching in Oregon, but you know, Oregon has a lower cost of living, blah, blah, blah. That was 10 years ago, blah, blah, blah. And when I find out that people are paying that to teaching artists in New York city with no guarantee of a number of hours a week that they're working, I find it appalling because you can't actually live on that wage. Um, because it's definitely if we have people who are not a part of this field listening, like they need to understand like $20 an hour might but be for equals, only two hours a week. Exactly. It might be for two hours a week. And that's one of the things that's really hard to explain to people is like what when we what we get paid does not cover in a lot of cases it doesn't cover our payroll taxes. It might we might be having to pay additional taxes on top of that. It doesn't cover any fringe benefits. We don't get health insurance. We don't get four oh one K contributions. We don't get um, you know, some of us get subsidized travel, but some of us don't. Um, the cost of being a teaching artist is very high. We often have to, you know, um, an arts administrator, you sit at a desk, but you didn't pay for the computer that's sitting on your desk. I work for the same organization, but I have to buy my own computer. Mm. It's little things like that on top of all of the other fringe costs that go into, um, into working. And one of the things that I'm really Uh, I advocate a lot for is at at the very least acknowledging the time that your artists are working for you. So if you're paying them, you know, I, like I, there's one place that I auditioned and got offered a job and I turned them down because they said, well, we pay $50 an hour. So that means in a 45 minute class, you actually make about, what is it like $40. I was like, Oh no, no, it's less than that. It was like $37 or something. They actually pay an hourly rate and they don't pay per class. Like they cut it down mm. if your class is less than 60 minutes. And I was like, that's, that's, a, that's unacceptable. Just, come on. Even right. if you're working in a class, a period is 45 minutes. Really it's 42. Really you've got 30 minutes to do anything. Right. And, and, and how much time are you taking to plan and prepare mm-hmm. so that that time with those, that group right. of kids is stellar. That is not $50 an hour. period and what right so if I'm going to teach one class if I'm going to teach one class I'm going to spend probably about 30 to 60 minutes of my life answering emails to get the gig where it's just like hey are you available at this time yes I am let's confirm with the teachers just like just getting the gig that one class then I'm going to spend probably an hour to two hours planning for the class I'm going to spend time getting the materials together whether or not I have to collect the materials from the organization or get them myself I'm going to spend about an hour to an hour and a half traveling each way so we're looking at about two hours total travel time plus you're looking at I want to arrive on site 30 to 15 minutes in advance depending on the organization and the site and Mm -hmm. if I know the site in advance if I have never been there before I'm going to show try and show up at least half an hour early if not earlier I'm going to stay after to make sure that the room is clean and put back together when I'm done like for one class that's at least a half day of work for one 42 minute class and probably it's actually closer to about six hours of work. And so to, to then say like, mm, yeah, we're actually, we're only going to pay you $42 for that. I mean, it's just, 
out of which you need to cover your own taxes and health insurance and retirement funding and blah, 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 like everything else it in travel probably. Like it's just – it's unlivable and it's unacceptable to me that people would ask their artists to work for that amount. So some places will say like, okay, well, we're going to pay you this low rate, but we're going to guarantee that if we send you out, we're sending you for two or three classes at a time. That's better, but it's still not good enough. Um so that's a, one of the things that I advocate for. We just did, as part of the Teaching Artists Affairs Committee, we did a survey of teaching artists around New York City, and we had teaching artists not just report on one of their jobs, but teaching artists report on more than up to three of their jobs. So we actually got around 300 different gigs reported on, Whoa. which is pretty incredible. And we haven't had time to go through all the results yet because they just got finished compiling a couple weeks ago and we need to sit down and actually analyze all of this data that we got in. There's tons of data on who these teaching artists are, what level of income they have, if they're male, female, what artist uh, artistry form they teach in, what um, ethnicity they are, what languages they speak, are they teaching with cultural organizations or libraries or YMCA's, like all of these different bits of data. But then what it really was about was compensation. What are you paid per hour for teaching? Does that include your planning fee? Are you getting paid separately for planning? If your organization says you have to be at this meeting where we're going to go over X, Y, and Z before the residency, are you getting paid for that meeting? Are you getting paid when you go to professional development? Are you being offered professional development? All of these questions of how teaching artists are compensated for their time. And just say like as one of the really, really preliminary findings that we found, like very, very preliminary, is that it's somewhere around 60 to 65% of teaching artists who report working primarily as a teaching artist in New York, their annual income, which might include teaching artist work plus artist income, et cetera, is under $35,000 a year, Whoa. which New York City Council does not consider a, a living wage, like a middle-class living wage. So these are people who are expected to, in a lot of cases, have graduate degrees, definitely bachelor's degrees, who have, you know, anywhere from two to 15 years of experience in their field are very not only competent but exceptional in their art form as well as their pedagogy and teaching practice and are able to work in New York City schools which have tons of challenges and like you can't just hire anybody to do it but nobody's paying these people enough to live a middle class life and this is something that I get really you know, it's like, it's like we all want to think that if we work hard in life and we're good at what we do at, we gain a certain amount of status that goes along with that. And part of the status is like not being broke, not having to be on food stamps, not having to, you know, um, go on unemployment during the summer because you're not getting enough work. Like what are the basic, like being able to someday retire, to have a plan for retirement, to be able to say like, yeah, I'm going to take a few weeks off to take care of my kid when they're born, like little things like that. And if we're making a low amount of money, we can't do that. Right. It's really the, the, one of the things that frustrates me the most about working at, about a teaching artist is the level of profess, professionalism and in both behavior and depth of knowledge is a very high level. And none of it is being, no one is being compensated at that level or a very, very small percentage of teaching artists mm -hmm. are being compensated at that level. I think that it's, um, I, th I think it's a real problem. I think it's a problem of, um, uh, it's, it's a labor problem. It's a problem of representation. I'm not necessarily a fan of, of advocating for unionizing, but I do think, and this is one of the reasons we did the survey, is that a lot of organizations just aren't thinking about it. 
when they make out their plans and they write their budgets, they're just to them, $50 an hour sounds like a lot of money, but it's not. No, it's not. And I'm putting it into that perspective is really, I mean, it's very powerful. I see an, an infographic coming, coming down the pike. Oh yeah. Uh, multiple infographics mm-hmm. and like sharing it against like, cost of living wages over the last four or five years, Mm -hmm. the inflation, like it definitely needs a a contextualized piece to really help because I think, um, and that's helpful for us. Like we are in the midst of trying to figure out how do we continue to make sure that our rates are are at the highest level that they can be based on all the same information that you you just laid out. Um, but still, you know, manageable in terms of budgets. And that is, that is always going to be a a huge challenge. Right. But then there's, there's this other piece that I don't think people talk about. And I probably don't know if I should talk about, but there's this other piece about like how much of funding is coming to, to, to cover, general operation costs right. versus payroll costs or yeah. teaching ours payroll costs. And I've had this conversation just ever so slightly about like funders also thinking about what the livable rate should be. I know. Yeah. So I want to keep talking about this. Tell you what, when we finish We're the survey, gonna, I, you I and I can do a more. special follow up. I would love that. I actually, honestly, I would love for the you and whoever else from mm-hmm. the committee to come and talk about, the findings and where, where we're going to go next, because that's, that's a huge, huge, very important thing. Yeah. And that, that, that same thing is also happening on, um, on a national level. Yeah. So it'd be cool to, th- and, and on a state level too. So it'd be cool to maybe try and figure out how we can find ways to correlate the information that is coming out. Lauren, so much. Thank you so much for, for being here. I did not ask all the questions. Clearly we need, we need more time, but we, <laughs> you know time. what? That's the beauty of this. You can come back. Yes. You'll come back. Um, any last, uh, thoughts, ideas, queries? Uh, just a thank you. This has been really delightful for me to reflect upon my own history and the paths that have brought me here. Um, that's, um, always a nice experience. We we're so busy in our lives. We don't always have a chance to look back and connect all of the dots so that's been delightful and um as just as an advocate i'm very excited about teaching artist voices being um promoted and honored and i I hope that that leads to deepening the work and the stability in the field that is my hope and uh i again i thank you for uh a being like super uh honest and genuine as you always are but um you for me was somebody that i wanted to make sure we had on on this podcast specifically for the advocacy piece, but also that, you know, understanding the sort of questioning and how the hustle that you Mm -hmm. do need, if this is the kind of work that you want to do, that what you have to, what you have to do in terms of honoring your passion and, and then how your passion can actually manifest into real work and real, real action. Um, So I'm looking forward to having further conversations with you both on and off air, (laughs) Um, but having you back definitely. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And I want to thank Ben Weber, our producer who um, provided some facts along the way, as well as for all the work that he's doing behind the scenes. So um, thank you and good night. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to episode seven, act one of teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body. Lauren Jost, Theater as Human Education. Join us next time for Act 2. 
Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John O. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. People like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.